think it was a genuinely life-changing moment, actually. And it's a, it's a sort of story about the power of words and language. Um, I would have been 15, I think. And you know, we had this obligatory go and speak to the careers advice teacher. And we had this joke that by definition, as kids, you know, by definition, a careers advice teacher was unqualified for the job they were in. Um, <laughs> it seems sort of painfully obvious. And uh, spoke to this. I feel sort of sorry for her in retrospect. I mean, she actually had this, you know, group of adolescents in and out and having to listen to their, their stories anyway i uh, we chatted for a bit and she said do you have any idea what you want to do and i said i know what i, I want to do in life and she said what's that and i said I'm, I'm going to be a magician i already am a magician i was already doing summer seasons and being paid for it and and she basically laughed in my face and and said well that isn't going to work and wrote down english teacher and gave it to me on a bit of paper uh, and told me the o levels i needed to definitely get and the university i needed to go to um and Years later, when I did that, um, got that lovely email from Prince William and or his team, um, I printed it out and sent it back to my school and said, I have no I have no memory of her name, but this would have been in the mid 60s. And if you still deal with that teacher, would you would you give her this email and tell her you told ah. me not to do this job? This is the Ideas Lab podcast, where you can learn from great creative and entrepreneurial minds how to turn your ideas into original businesses, books, and brands. Because in a crowded world, it pays to stand out. This is your host, John Williams, best-selling author and founder of the Ideas Lab London. Lee Warren is a keynote speaker and workshop facilitator, and he's author of the award-winning book, The Busy Person's Guide to Great Presenting. Lee's had a pretty unconventional career path as he started out as a professional magician, performing at one point for the royal family. One of Lee's popular keynote topics is how to persuade anyone to do anything. And that's the topic we dive into here. Lee, thanks very much for making time to speak to the Ideas Lab podcast. My pleasure. Nice to be here. Now, you are a keynote speaker and a workshop facilitator, and you're also an author of the book, The Busy Person's Guide to Great Presenting, which looks fantastic. We won an award recently in the Business Book Awards I was part of. Um, but what I'm interested in is, is this topic of how to persuade anyone to do anything. There was a proviso, wasn't there? But this is one of your, one of your passionate topics. Can you persuade anyone to do anything? Um, so it, it's the title of my main keynote, uh, the keynote I get booked to deliver most, and um, and also some workshops that spin off that. And the full title is How to Persuade Anybody to Do Anything, brackets, well, almost, close brackets. Uh, because So the answer is no, you can't persuade anybody to do anything. But you can get much closer than you are today. Um, and actually, a lot of the skills, I think there's a misunderstanding. A lot of people think being persuasive and being engaging is a sort of manipulative or a Machiavellian thing. Um, but actually, right at the core of what I do is, is quite a simple idea, which is that being persuasive, if, if, you've, if you've got a, a service or a product that's valuable, right, if it's worth something in the world, then it stands to reason that it's in everybody's interest for you to be more persuasive. Because there's no point having a brilliant idea and you sit in the corner of your room telling the corner of your room that you've got a great idea. Uh, you, you have to learn the skills of getting out, getting attention, getting your message heard, getting people to believe you. Um, so it's in everybody's interest to be better at that. And I think we can all be learn how to be better at that. Yeah. And, the, and it's an interesting point you've turned, you, you reached because you didn't exactly have a formal, a, a conventional career path. 
you were a, <laughs> a, you were a magician, a professional magician for quite some time. Is that right? Yes, I was for twenty years. Oh, because you performed for the the Royals or something. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, I've I've, um, I've performed for several of the royal family, um, and um, and I had a lovely uh, email from well, apparently from Prince William, probably from one of his spunkies, which. And it was a very nice quotation in that, which paid my mortgage for about a decade, um, which was very glowing. I, I performed at the um, Princess Diana Memorial uh, concert, um, and I was invited by, by by him and his team to perform. So, uh, and they were very uh, very complimentary and flattering. Is, were you on stage, or was this like close up magic, or what? No, this was in the in the VIP hospitality suite. Um, so, if you know if you're at Wembley or any stadium, you always have the, the hospitality gatherings where you you can see the whole venue. Um, so I was doing magic there. Yeah. Okay. It, true. I suppose magic on stage for a memorial concert would probably not be appropriate. But <laughs> it's quite hard. Quite hard to follow Lily Allen with a few card tricks. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I heard a story that um, you knew very young what you wanted to be, but you wanted to be a magician. How did you work that out? Um, well, it was very. It's true. It's very very young. I was four years old. It's quite a cli- It's funny. It's quite a cliched magician story, actually. Um, and lots of um, certainly professional magicians have, have a story that's uncannily similar. Um, but when I was four years old, I had a, a, a trick in my Christmas stocking. It was one, you know, it was a little, a very simple trick, and I found it absolutely enchanting. And the trick was, it, it was just a saucer. It was a plastic red saucer. And the trick was, you put four two pence coins on this saucer, and when you tipped them into someone's hands, they became eight two pence coins. Um, and it wasn't clever, and it wasn't subtle, and the saucer did all the work. Um, but at four years old, I, I just found this so enchanting. And I think I thought my family loved it so much. My birthday is 10 days after Christmas, January the 5th, uh, that they bought me a magic set. Um, and I fell further in love with it. But actually, the st- real story is they were so fed up um, with <laughs> with me running up, doing the saucer trick again and again and again and again, that they thought if they bought me a magic set, that, that at least they'd see different tricks. Um and actually, I learned uh, um, just to be slightly serious about that tiny moment. I learned by accident something early on, really, which was really important to my subsequent career, both as a performer and as a sort of business owner um, and a speaker. Which is that you you sort of I think to be really good at anything in life, you 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 have to do the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and there's a very old phrase in magic, which is that a professional magician shows a small number of tricks to lots of different people and an amateur magician shows um uh, uh, lots of different tricks to the same small number of people and and i think it's i think it's profoundly true it's really 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 true so i learned i was i was lucky by accident i learned that very very early in life and then um uh i i seem to remember a story where you actually you you ended up telling the careers advisor that this is what you wanted to do when you were still at school. It, it was a big, it was a genuinely life changing moment actually, and it's a it's a sort of story about the power of words and language. Um, I would have been fifteen, I think, and you know, we had this obligatory go and speak to the careers advice teacher, and we had this joke that by definition, as kids, you know, by definition, a careers advice teacher was unqualified for the job they were in. Um, <laughs> It seemed sort of painfully obvious and uh, spoke to this. I feel sort of sorry for her in retrospect. I mean, she actually had this, you know, group of adolescents in and out and having to listen to their, their stories. Anyway, I uh, we chatted for a bit and she said, do you have any idea what you want to do? And I said, I know what I, I want to do in life. And she said, what's that? And I said, I'm, I'm going to be a magician. I already am a magician. I was already doing summer seasons and being paid for it. 
and and she basically laughed in my face and and said well that isn't going to work and wrote down english teacher and gave it to me on a bit of paper uh, and told me the o levels i needed to definitely get and the university i needed to go to um and years later when i did that um got that lovely email from prince william and or his team um i printed it out and sent it back to my school and said i have no i have no memory of her name but this would have been in the mid 60s and if you still deal with that teacher would you would you give her this email and tell her you told me not to do this job yeah. oh my god i love that and i think i yes i've had uh similar similar kind of uh episodes of careers advisor i think one is sort of said well you know don't set your heights to, don't set your sights too high was was kind of a gist of a conversation i had with one that's really interesting so how do how did you move from being a magician to being a keynote speaker and and an expert on persuasion <laughs> um so the honest the honest quick answer is i have no idea um the the slightly the slightly longer um answer is it, it it sort of happened i suspect this is true for many people in life actually you you sort of end up where you are by accident in many many ways and that some of those are lucky accidents and, and some of them are unlucky accidents um but over it became fairly clear reasonably early in my performing career that i understood businesses um and i used to get booked for quite a lot of corporate events where there was a message so I'd be booked for things like product launches or perhaps client-facing events, um, and and I built a quite a strong uh, brand as as a magician that you could trust with your business message. So in other words, people would book me and they'd say, "Look, it's really important that our clients leave feeling X or that they leave remembering X." So I I, I developed a sort of skill of building magic around those messages. So so I so I had quite a strong reputation in the corporate world for performing and being that that kind of person you would go to that kind of performance and then speaking really sort of developed out of, out of that so it, it, it sort of organically evolved i'd be at a conference you know and a client would say something like oh is there any chance you could just introduce the afternoon we don't need you to do any magic but if you could just give a 10 minute summary because you know we're all accountants and we don't want to be on stage or something like that i don't want, i don't want to be rude about accountants but but you know that's what they'd say and and then i realized um a that went down very well b uh, I'd been doing magic for a long time and I needed a, a fresh challenge, a different challenge. Um, and also, I think I realized I was I was better at just speaking than than doing magic. Actually, that's what, what I really enjoyed. So I started building some messages and trying them out and, and it, it, it built from there. There's an important lesson there, I think, actually, which is that you find out, you know, anyone who's sitting around waiting for some inspiration about what to do with their life. I, I mean, I've written <laughs> two books now and I, I really wish people would stop doing that. But... <laughs> You know, I can't. I can't write another book on that on that basis. But anyone who is, they have to understand that the way you find out what you love to do is by doing it, and also that's how you find out what you're good at. You know, it's only when you you started it evolved kind of naturally from uh, magic into being a keynote speaker, and and you just discovered you enjoyed it and were good at it. Oh, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. And I, I think there's there's another lesson there as well, which is that to a large extent, you know, you don't get to say to the world what you are good at. Um, you know, the world tells you eventually. Um, and you're, in my case, I often use the word audience, I suppose, because my background is a performer. But where I use the word audience, you can use the word market or target market or something. But in, in my case, as a performer, your, your audience absolutely tells you who you are very quickly. So, you know, you may think you're an elegant, silent illusion act, but if audiences start laughing every time you're on stage, you're a comedy act, whether you like it or not. And conversely, you may think you're really funny and you may write some brilliant lines all alone in your room. But the minute those die on stage, your audience tell you, sorry, you're not funny. 
Um, and so I think, I think without being rude about it, I think my audiences, as I got older, started telling me, actually, we like it when you just talk. Right. We, we think that's be- we prefer that. We're happy to pay for that. We don't really need the magic. I don't think they were saying the magic is totally rubbish, but but they were they were clearly saying, actually, there's this one thing we can get from you. We could get the magic from 100 other people. And I didn't decide that. They told me that. So I, and, and I, I think a big part of being a performer and a business owner and anyone who wants to earn money from what you love is you, you have to really listen to what people are saying to you and what they're asking you for. Yeah, that is such an important point. Uh, yeah, go out and do things. Listen internally to see what you're enjoying, but also listen externally to what the reaction is. And so it, this this thing about persuasion really interests me. I And we were talking before we started recording about a problem people who read my books often have is that they have an idea for a, a business or something and they get excited about it. They put it out into the world and it's just kind of tumbleweeds. So is this a persuasion thing? And is there anything, any tip you've got uh, to make sure that when you say something and announce something for the first time, people actually are caught by it and, and, and interested? Yeah, so I think there's um, – so I'm really sorry. I don't speak in tweets. I can only speak in long paragraphs. It's a, it's a failing of mine. But, um, but I think there are a couple of things wrapped up in there. So, so the first is – and this might be a provocative idea um, for some people. I think it is. But I, th- I think a lot of people have an idea that having, a, that having an idea is, is the difficult part. And once you've had an idea, that's sort of you, – you've sort of done most of your work. Um, and I think – I think for anyone even slightly creative, I think it's it's absolutely the opposite. It's true. I think having ideas is is re- quite easy actually. I think conjuring up, you're sitting around with three people and saying, "All right, let's have a day. Let's create 50 new ideas." I I think that's fairly a fairly easy thing to do. Um, and I think you know if you speak to composers and artists and performers and whatever, actually coming up with a tune or coming up with an idea for a painting, that that's sort of the easy bit. It, it's sort of what you do next with that idea, I think, that where the challenges and the struggle come. So partly that's how do you structure your idea? Um, how do you make it real in the world? And then once you've done that, it's it's how then, and this speaks to the persuasion bit, how, how do you then get other people interested in it, interested enough to see it, to listen to it, to pay for it, um, whatever it is? So the, the first step, the big step is is getting attention. Um, and, and this is where I suppose a background of being a magician speaks deeply to being persuasive, which is if, if you ask any professional magician, what is the most difficult part of your job? They will not say doing the magic, right? Doing the magic is easy. You learn how to do that when you were 15. You sat down in a room all on your own and practiced the difficult slide of hand. That's now easy and second nature. The difficult part is how do you get people's attention when you walk on stage? or when you walk into a room full of people networking and having champagne, or when you walk up to a table of 10 at an awards dinner. It's, and if you can get their attention, most of your other problems are solved. And so if you watch a professional magician, you'll see they do, usually the first thing they do is very fast, very visual. Um, so magicians will do things like, you know, a burst of fire on a table or something. And the whole table goes, oh my God, what's that? And brilliant. That's 90% of your work done. So to relate it back to being an early stage business owner or having a, a business idea, I think, um, sorry, this is a bit of a vague answer, but you, you, you have to focus on getting attention, first of all. In my experience, and, and this is only my experience, there are two absolutely guaranteed ways to do that, and that is to speak about what you do and to write about what you do. 
Um, I, th- I think they're the two things that put anybody into sort of instant guru status. Um, and some uh, speaking, of course, can mean all sorts of things. It can mean making videos. It can mean doing podcasts like this. It can mean being on stages at conferences. Um, but any any sort of coaching or mentoring I've done with with clients of mine, um, and I do quite a lot of leadership work at slightly larger businesses, so corporates, and quite often are my my main target. Um, and I've, I've really had to push some clients, you know, oh, I don't want to speak at a conference. I don't want to do this panel, but every single time without exception, every single time I've done that, every time they've said afterwards, something like, oh my God, three people came up in the audience and said, we loved that. Basically, how do we work with you? Or somebody on the other panel or another speaker has said, oh my God, you should speak at so-and-so, or you should meet so-and-so. It's such um, I'm, I'm slightly baffled at people who spend months, years, hours writing marketing plans and and strategy plans, and and just 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 walk on stage or just get in front of a video because you two other magical things happen when you do that. You you knock out the people who don't like you anyway, right? So you shortcut that whole process of meeting them and having coffee and trying to sell to them, and you and you attract the people who not only like your message um, but like you delivering the message. Uh, you, you you know, and you only need to do it for a year and get two or three people every single time to have a really a, a massive lift to your business. And then the other side is writing, of course, which you know about more than me. Yeah. And and if you so if for these clients for you've coached to be on a panel or to give a speech, is there something in particular, you know, is a, is there like one most important thing that helps them to be more persuasive, to be able to not, not just present their content, content but you know, have an impact and feel like I'm somebody who should be taken seriously, or at least, you know, I'm somebody who's going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. So there are are two key things. So the first is, and this is a bit counterintuitive, um, but don't sell, right? Um, You you really have to try and avoid uh, the temptation. Um, Where I've seen it go really wrong, certainly with early business owners, is they get invited on a panel or to speak, and they start by saying, uh, what we do at ABC Limited is dot, 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 and we're brilliant. And audiences, they just switch off instantly. Um, it's a bit like being that restaurant owner on a, on a beachfront when you're on holiday. You know, the people with menus out at the front of the restaurant, and they're always saying, are you hungry? Come in, come in. You know, And you just you just run a mile, right? So, so don't be that kind of speaker. But in terms of actually engaging people, I have, I have a mini formula, um, which is sort of fun and useful, and anybody can learn it quickly, which is um, an acronym HAMPIE, H-A-M-P-I-E. And Hampi, it's in um, uh, it's in my, my my book actually, uh, my award winning book. Um, but <laughs> and Ham stands for uh, hearts and minds, right? H A M, hearts and minds. And the basic idea is, if you're going to engage any human being, any audience, any market, you 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 you've got to aim for some emotional connection first in your message or as early as possible in your message. So that might mean preparing um, a quick anecdote. It might mean using a bit of humor. It might mean being very vulnerable, very humble on stage. Audiences love people who say, oh, this is the first panel I've ever done. I'm a bit nervous. You know, we're really warm to that kind of human um, emotional stuff. And far too many people when they present or when they speak or when they try and pitch their business, far too many people use content and data and statistics and information and that stuff is is useful and it's brilliant and it backs up your message. But if you don't give an audience a reason to, to know why they should listen to that stuff, they, they don't listen to it. and They don't tend to believe it. Um, so always try and get an emotional connection uh, with an audience first. Um, so, you know, if I was if I was I don't do a lot of coaching, actually, most of my work is as, as a keynote speaker. Um, but if I were coaching someone, I'd always recommend I'd say say to the host, here's a little story about me I'd love to speak about early. 
So ask me this question first. So you just get the audience on board. Um, and then the pie of ham pie stands for pictures, interest, and enthusiasm, P-I-E, pictures, interest, enthusiasm. And pictures basically means wherever you can in your message, get some pictures in people's heads. So tell little stories, give them some anecdotes, create easy metaphors, um, use language like imagine if dot, 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 or wouldn't it be brilliant if dot, dot, dot. Um, uh, people tend to be very persuaded by visual imagery in their minds. Um, interest is very obvious. Speak to what's interesting to the audience more than what's interesting to you. Uh, far too many presenters and business owners talk about that, what, what matters to them rather than what matters to their audience. And then enthusiasm, again, I think is, is pretty obvious. You, you've got to believe your own stuff. You've you really got to deep down be passionate about your own message because otherwise you can't uh, persuade. You've got to persuade yourself first before you persuade other people. That's really good. I like that model. And that particularly that idea of of making an emotional connection first. I think, you know, I write a fair bit of copy and I help clients of copy <clears throat> to, to sell things. And um, the, the way I think of it is as word pictures all the time. So what you're trying right. to do is you're trying to paint a picture of their life as it is now, but they're going to empathize with if you're trying to uh, engage them and get them interested, like, oh, right, this person's talking about my life. And then you talk about, the end destination, uh, and you make a word picture of that, which is imagine if, or something like that. That can be a little cheesy sometimes, but that works sometimes. And other ways you can go, you know, where my clients typically get to is this, or this is what we want for you. And then you can see the difference between those two pictures and people want to move from where they are to the ideal picture, rather than just describing things, as you say, with data and so on. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and I think, you know, there's a strange quirk of the human mind and it, and it shouldn't be true. Um, and it's not fair, really, but it is, which is that things that are easy to understand are easier to believe uh, almost every time. And it's what um, I don't want to tread into the world of politics, but, you know, we, we've seen what happens in the UK and in the States at the moment. When you've got very simple, clear, punchy visual messages people believe them, right? They're, because most of us cognitively, we're quite lazy. We don't want to do a lot of, a lot of work. Um, and again, it comes back to a background of performing. If you watch any good magician perform, you'll see there's zero room or zero moments when an audience has to think or wonder what is going on or where should we be focused at this point in time? You know, and a magician will say something like, um, please take this deck of cards and look through the cards and make sure they're all real. And they'll be guiding the audience through this process very, very precisely, because the minute an audience has to start thinking, they'll either start getting cynical and skeptical or they'll just switch off. Uh, so that's I think that's why visual images are so, so useful. They're just easy to understand. Yeah. And uh, as we're recording this, uh, I, I will strain to politics, but not into the political content. But um, as we're recording this, Boris Johnson has just found out that his suspension of parliament was illegal. And uh, is going to have to face... Un- unlawful, by the way. They unlawful, I know, it's true. That is quite yeah. important, yeah. actually. And uh, and he's going to have to face the music today in Parliament. If you, Now, I think Boris Johnson, whether you hate him or, or, or love him, is very persuasive, incredibly persuasive, uh, as is Donald Trump, even if you hate him. And it doesn't matter which way you feel about it for the for purposes of our conversation. Um, but for, for Boris Johnson... Do you notice people like him who are very good at persuasion and notice what they're doing? Is there anything in particular um, that you think he does well in terms of persuasion? 
Yeah, there there are several things. Um, I, I think there's a bit of a difference, I th- I, particularly when we look at politicians, because there's there's already an inherent pre- inherent prejudice. I think when somebody is a politician, I, I um, particularly because it's very rare for us to see a politician on television without a party name attached to them or without a point of view attached to them. So I think for many of us, it's quite hard to view a politician um, dispassionately. It's very, very different to, to a business owner standing up that we've never heard of before. We've got much more opportunity there, actually, to be persuasive. Having said that, as that caveat, there, there, Boris Johnson uh, or Alexander de Feffel, Boris Johnson, as it should be known, um, uh, uh, or Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, um, has, he has a, quite a rare gift, which is that when he stands up and starts speaking, people start smiling. Um, and, and it's a very disarming thing. And it's, I, I think that's something you can't teach probably. Um, and it's something, it's just a gift someone has or they don't have it. Uh, very famously, people like Tommy Cooper had it. You know, the minute there are some people that in showbiz, we say they have funny bones. The minute they appear, people just start smiling and relaxing. So he has that gift and that's very useful in terms of being persuasive. He does, he, he, he does. I think it's a cultural thing as well. I think there are different cultural things. So there is a quirk of the British and perhaps particularly English mindset, which is that a certain type of slightly disheveled, shambolic ex-public schoolboy just has an automatic amount of status. But if we take it away from cultural attachments, I, authority and status tend to be very persuasive. So if somebody has, you know, if, for example, if, 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 if a business person is introduced, um, so let, let's take it out of politics. Let's say Richard Branson is 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 automatically a persuasive person until he he until he takes that away himself because he's 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 got a status, he's got authority um, in the world. The head of NASA has is persuasive to a large extent or automatically. So authority and status are very persuasive. So so Johnson has that, and lastly, he does have a gift. Perhaps not. I think what we've seen recently is perhaps not as great as he or I might have thought until he's challenged. But he does have a gift for summing things up in quite visual ways and quite pithy, tweetable statements, um, for better or for worse. Uh, uh, so he, he does have that that gift of rhetoric, which some of his opponents don't have. Um, they, they don't have that gift for if easily. So that's something I should have mentioned earlier, actually, which is things that are easy to understand are easy to believe but they're also very easy to repeat and to remember and that tends to be a key part of being persuasive um all great advertising campaigns are built around that for example the genius phrase of the leave campaign as illustrated in that um document uh, well try drama documentary about uh, dominic cummings is the take back control phrase which was as a piece of marketing uh uh, personally, I'm, I'm not a fan of a leave campaign, but that doesn't matter. In terms of marketing, it was it was a stroke of absolute genius. So um, it, this is, and it's so simple, and people get what it means. Um, and, and so I am fascinated by this this whole world of politics because it's very dramatic at the moment, both in the UK and the US. Are you familiar with Keith Johnson's sort of high status, low status concept? I, 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 stu- I studied with Keith Johnston in the early 90s. So Keith Johnston's the person who wrote the classic book Improv, and it's fascinating. Even if you don't want to do improv or comedy improv, it's just a fascinating book. And the first section, I think, is about status and the idea that we all uh, naturally play a status level where we come across as there's a little bit of like you carry yourself like you're superior or you carry yourself like you're inferior. And there are advantages at times to being one or the other but we all naturally play a certain 
status. And, and, and so I, but Boris is a bit difficult to fit into that, isn't it? Because, like you say, he comes with the status of being an Eton schoolboy and obviously being the prime minister as of today. And <laughs> who knows about tomorrow? And um, it, it, so we know all of that and we know his history, but also he plays otherwise. He seems to play low status, which is, is quite interesting. Yeah, he 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 combines the two, and what 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 he does is very clever, um, either accidentally or or as I suspect by design. Which the thing I, I think it's partly a cultural thing in in Britain. You know, there's that famous thing we sort of love the underdog, um, and I think he knows he already has that status. It's there. It's inherent. It's it's it, he couldn't get rid of it if he tried. So by deliberately, um, and and I have a couple of friends who who worked with him fairly closely at the, the um. Uh, when he was the, the mayor of London, uh, who told fairly hilarious stories about you know him deliberately messing up his hair just before a TV interview. So weirdly, it's a bit counterintuitive, but by deliberately underplaying that status, he actually enhances it because it's almost like, um, you know, I have such status, I don't even need to make any, I don't need to wear the Rolex. Um, and again, in, in the UK particularly, perhaps around the world, I don't know, but we have a sort of t- kind of contempt, I think, for people who try cosmetically to enhance their status you know they buy the big car and the rolex and we pull away from those people and and we have to remember that persuasion varies according to your audience so you know we might find it mysterious that donald trump is considered a master of persuasion because probably the majority of people in britain find him a i don't know what a a ludicrous or 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 unappealing figure i mean there are you know not everybody but he's he doesn't have a massive fan club over here, whereas he clearly did win the Electoral College election in the US, whatever you might think about him. And and the same with Boris. Boris would not play well in America. It's it, his, his shtick, he's UK specific, and he probably wouldn't play well in France or Germany and numerous other countries. So he's... Yeah, he's got a thing which is now people might be wondering why we're talking about him as persuasive. But we absolutely despise him every time we look at him. But you've only got to you can't persuade everybody, right? This is why your talk is called "How to Persuade Anybody About All About Almost Anything Almost," because yeah. you've only got to win over the majority. You haven't got to win over a hundred percent. You've only got to win over sixty percent to win an election. So it doesn't matter if Donald Trump or Boris Johnson turns off. Um, you know, forty percent of people would you would like to stab him in the heart or something because he's otherwise quite endearing. Absolutely, yeah. And I and I think I mean there's there's a very clear reason why I gave the, the my my keynote the title that I did. In fact, I refer to it during the keynote, and this probably speaks a little bit to that thing of Johnson underplaying his status, which is that. Um, and I go into it in some detail, but I'll paraphrase it quickly, which is that very often by admitting a weakness out loud or by demonstrating a vulnerability or a weakness, you actually enhance the strength of your message or the strength of your proposition. And so quite deliberately in the title of my talk, it's called How to Persuade Anybody to Do Anything Well Almost. And that well almost, weirdly, if it was just called How to Persuade Anybody to Do Anything, it would sound too ridiculous to be credible. But the the well almost humanizes it and adds a vulnerability and a slight touch of humor which makes it much more powerful as a title um and and it also speaks a bit to that emotional connection compared to fact because if i if i called it um uh, persuasion skills workshop in meeting room three right nobody would turn up or or they would think i don't need to turn up because i'll get that next week right but calling it 
how to persuade anybody to do anything. Well, almost the emotional thing is, oh, I've never heard that before. That sounds really fun and interesting. And if I don't go today, I'll never get this again. So there's a real impulse there. And it's, it's deliberate in the title. That's very good. I think there's something else you do as well. We talked about word pictures earlier is because you use the word anyone and not just, you know, persuasion skills, you know, advanced persuasion skills or whatever. What it does is it makes you think of the person you want to persuade and what you want. It's almost like you want to um, insert your own situation into the anyone and anything. So you go, God, I wish I could persuade my partner to do X or my kid or my boss or whoever it might be. So you start filling in the blank. And then what you're doing, if it works right, is you create a, a scene in your head of that girl. Like, what would life be like if I could actually get my kid to eat their greens or my boss to give me a pay rise or whatever it might be, or that person to go out with me. So um, I think that's also much more exciting for that reason. I, I, I couldn't agree more. And in fact, you've reminded me of something I wanted to say when you mentioned the, um, the, the slogan, take back control, which was that part of the brilliance of that slogan was it sounded very specific while in fact being astonishingly vague. Uh, I mean, you could you, you and and it was clever. I mean, to the extent of I, I think it was a, a dog whistle actually um, to a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment as well. Um, but 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 it was a total hands-off. You 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 make of this what you want while speaking directly to the emotional needs of millions of people. Um, that that was I think part of why it works. And and well, ditto. Uh, make America great again. There is just that that dog whistle of like. You don't like the way it's going, and there's this, it's it plays well with racists, but it also plays. But it but it but even if you're not of that ilk, it it, it speaks to something else. So you project whatever you want onto it. But it certainly it's a classic conservative uh, concept, which is that you know you can go rewind to a time when things were better in some way, or or, or when at least our our principles were better. I don't know what, but, uh, you know, it, it, again, I mean, actually that was already used, wasn't it? Because uh, I think Ronald Reagan had that as his uh, campaign slogan. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think anybody who tells you that they've learned anything particularly new about persuasion is probably bluffing. Um, I mean, almost everything you need to know is in, I mean, Aristotle in the Poetics. Uh, mo- most of these ideas were there then. I think even fear, I can't remember off the top of my head, but I think fear of the outsider. But if it wasn't in Aristotle, it's 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 several thousand years old at least. Um, yeah, they, they, these things come around in in, in cycles. The, the best quote of, of that sums up my whole uh, of the first book, Screw Her, Let's Play, is is Aristotle, and it's something like, um, "Where the needs of the world and your best talents meet, there lies your vocation." So it's the right. idea that you, it's. You, where you need three things altogether. You need to find this thing that you love doing, that you're good at, and that the, find a way to do something the world needs. You just doing what you love doesn't necessarily magically um, fill your bank account up. You have to actually create some value for people. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's been really fascinating, Lee. And um, I love the sound of your book. So people can check out the Busy Person's Guide to Great Presenting if they want to. Um, get that and get it on Amazon. And um, if you want to find out more about you, where should they go? Um, my so my website is is fairly easy. It's leewarrenspeaker.com. Okay, leewarrenspeaker.com. Great. And what have you got coming up in the near future? Is there anything um, exciting happening? Uh, well, October, so we're recording this in uh, September. October is conference season, so that's always pretty much always my one of my busiest months. 
Um, and um, on a personal level, I'm trying to buy a flat in Valencia, Spain at the moment. So I'm flying to and from here and there all the time. And buying, buying a property in your own country and own language is tough enough. And um, but in another language, another country is uh, 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 fairly stressful. But the result will be great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's always been my semi-retirement plan to... Yeah, right. <laughs> I have a client in Valencia, so if you, if you need some help, you might be able to help. <laughs> British client. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Great. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Uh, thanks very much, Lee. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ideas Lab podcast. Please do subscribe, and if you've enjoyed this episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review. You can get links and details of everything mentioned in the podcast in the show notes, along with photos and video clips from many of our episodes. Just go to theideaslab.org forward slash podcast.